What did dinosaurs really look like and how do we know? Let's find out together. The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots, I'm Mike McCarg, and this is The Cozy Robot Show. Our program where we learn about empathetic skepticism together, how we get in touch with our feelings, understand the feelings of others, learn how to discern what is true or less true in our world, and how to make the kind of world together that we'd all like to live in. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you've enjoyed your holiday week. This show is kind of a bite-sized edition of the program as uh, a lot of our team is taking some time off uh, for, you know, to rest through the holidays, as we all should have the ability to do, uh, which will mean something's a little different this week. You know, every week on the Cozy Robot Show, we have an after-party right after the program for Cozy Robots on our Discord server. And tonight, you can have an after-party if you'd like, but neither me nor any members of uh, the Cozy Robot team will be there as we are all taking a, a little break. One day, uh, we'll be back next Monday as normal. But if you'd like to learn how to be a part of that Cozy Robots community, you can learn all about it at CozyRobots.com. And most of you, according to our analytics, are listening to this program as a podcast. Still, more than 90% of people who uh, tune into the Cozy Robot Show do so as an audio format. And that's great. Continue to enjoy that. This week, we will have some visuals, which I will describe. The visuals won't be, you know, um, essential to understanding the content of this program. But if you'd like to tune back in, remember, that's always an option. If you'd like to watch along, the show is on YouTube. It's on Instagram TV. Uh, it's on Facebook and it's on Twitch. Twitch, it's only available live, however. So if you're tuning in live, Twitch is a great place. We've seen a lot of people make the switch to Twitch because of uh, how fast and smooth the video is over there. YouTube, of course, is a great platform as well. Facebook, we do our best, but uh, Facebook is is Facebook. So uh, there's a little bit more of a delay over there. And often the comments don't sync up with other platforms. So, you know, that's kind of the deal for this week's show and this week's show wow it's going to be fun you know we talk about important things on this program we talk about difficult things but we also just want to talk about fun things and the cozy robots you know referenced so many times already in this program they help us decide what we'd like to talk about and uh to that end we've had a new member join our team thanks to the generosity of Cozy Robots Everywhere, Grace is our social media manager and doing an incredible job. And Grace um, has a less complicated relationship with social media than I do. You know, I uh, I love the community building that's possible in social media. And, you know, I have a, a complex relationship with uh, the technologies and the supernormal stimulus and all that stuff. And so Grace does a good job at redeeming what's great about social media. And uh, basically started a petition using the Cozy Robot social media account, which I don't even have a login for. I, I literally couldn't send a message as the Cozy Robots if I wanted to, saying that uh, she wished I would talk about dinosaurs and that uh, got a lot of traction. It seems a lot of people wish that we'd spend some time talking about dinosaurs. So for this kind of episode right after the Thanksgiving holiday when we're all 
uh, still recovering from Turkey Day, we thought it'd be fun just to talk about dinosaurs, what they look like, what we get right and wrong when we talk about dinosaurs in popular culture and popular media. So this is a dinosaur show. And um, dinosaurs are incredibly charismatic. I mean, they, they, they are literally larger than life as we understand it. I think they're so popular for a reason. They capture our imaginations. And the way that we understand dinosaurs, friends, has changed a lot over time. You know, when I was a kid, way back in the late 70s and early 1980s, dinosaur kids, or dinosaur kids, <laughs> dinosaur toys for kids were different. They were tall. What do I mean? When you would see, say, uh, well, the most famous of all the dinosaurs, Tyrannosaurus rex. When I was a child, Tyrannosaurus rex was standing upright and you know his head would be bent at like a 90 degree angle to his body and then his tail would kind of come out to the back it would look almost like a person with really short arms and a tail this really upright posture and you'd see over and over when dinosaurs were toys they were depicted as either as upright as possible with uh, you know, sauropods, long necks sticking straight up in the air and their tails dragging along the ground. And they'd have this combination of an upright posture and a very lizard-like low energy, you know, presentation. The, the, the implication here was the dinosaurs being understood to be reptiles and reptilian. Uh, they would move through the world in kind of a similar way as we imagine crocodilians or lizards, lots of tail dragging, um, Lots of slow movements. And when we'd watch stop motion footage of dinosaur uh, models or we'd watch uh, animations of dinosaurs, they were also depicted in that very reptilian way. And then there was this revolution. The film Jurassic Park showed us dinosaurs in a whole new way. And a lot of what Jurassic Park did was bring in a more contemporary understanding of dinosaurs through paleontology and then make it... Uh, <laughs> over the top to make a blockbuster film. But one of the things they did is they switched from tall dinos, like when I was a kid, to long dinos, where if you had a, a Tyrannosaur depicted in that movie, uh, the T-Rex's body was almost parallel to the ground instead of uh, perpendicular. So their head kind of naturally came out front. And it showed a more agile creature where, where the tail was being used to counterbalance the head. and. Uh, wow, that's really wild that we had that big of a change in my early life, period of about 20 years, to uh, understand what dinosaurs look like. And I thought, you know, it might be fun together to explore, you know, what did dinosaurs look like and how do we know that and how big were they? And were they the terrible lizards that were described to us having these kind of cold-blooded metabolisms effectively like giant crocodilians or lizards or were they warm-blooded more like modern birds who we understand are actually descendants of theropods a particular family of dinosaurs you know you might have heard the crocodile or the alligator described as being living dinosaurs but if you could call and i'm serious about this a crocodile a living dinosaur actually birds have a better claim to that title than a than a crocodile does. Pretty wild. So if that's true, were these massive creatures feathered or did they have fur? 
or were they scaly? These are really interesting questions because as we think about how these creatures have been depicted versus how paleontology and evolutionary biology understand them over time, there's a lot of changes, you know. Uh, I'm really into dinosaurs. You can probably see back on the shelf, I've got a sauropod right there, uh, even as part of the animation of the opening credits. Um, but I have a lot of dinosaur toys. Uh, I've got this T-Rex here. And this, this is a particularly interesting T-Rex to me, is, is that sauropod. Uh, I spent a lot of time researching how to find uh, dinosaur toys that were the right scale to match the size of Dungeons & Dragons minis as dinosaurs show up in my D&D games, which is quite funny. But I just want you to, you know, if you're, if you're listening right now, you can't see this toy that I'm holding up. But it's kind of traditional in that... Um, it's a green, scaly T-Rex, but I've got another T-Rex toy here from the same company. And this one is very colorful. Now it doesn't have feathers, but instead of being a kind of mottled green, it's a blue and yellow and red. And it's a, a more colorful presentation. And this is not simply based on the imagination. This is not simply to market the toy to children. The reason these figures are posed differently and colored differently is they represent different understandings paleontologists have of how tyrannosaurs may have looked. And how is it that our understanding of how these creatures change over time? Well, it's pretty interesting, at least to me. Paleontology and evolutionary biology as they relate to dinosaurs are actually really good proxies to understand how science works more generally. When we talk about what dinosaurs looked like, if they had feathers or not, what their posture was like, were they warm-blooded or cold-blooded, the fact is we don't have definitive answers to many of these questions. The answers we do have are nuanced and subtle and complicated. And as we study the fossil record over time, as we make more discoveries and our means of inquisition get more advanced, we get more confidence in our knowledge of dinosaurs. We have more certainty Never a definitive yes or no, but more certainty about the knowledge we have. But we also find our new knowledge what raises new questions that begin to subvert our understanding of even the most basic facets of dinosaurs and their lives. And that's how science works. That doesn't reveal a problem with paleontology or evolutionary biology. That reveals how science is designed to give us incremental and increasing insights on a given topic over time. So I thought tonight we'd just explore three easy questions about dinosaurs. The first of which is, like, what is a dinosaur anyway? <laughs> because if we're gonna talk about the characteristics of dinosaurs, we have to be really clear of what a dinosaur is. And the popular usage of dinosaur in our culture is probably unsurprisingly different from the scientific usage. There's over 2,500 dinosaur species spread over hundreds of millions of years, big periods of time in a geological era. And we have to be specific, not all ancient creatures, even in that era, are dinosaurs. Think about pterodactyls, those flying dinosaurs. They're not dinosaurs at all, technically. Neither would be plesiosaurs, those 
swimming dinosaurs, which I always thought of as like a brontosaurus or brachiosaurus with fins. Those also were not technically dinosaurs. They were contemporaries of many dinosaur species, but they were taxonomically distinct. All true dinosaurs come from two basic groupings, either bird-hipped dinosaurs or lizard-hipped dinosaurs. And here's something funny about that. This is free, uh, included at no extra charge in your viewing and listening experience today. Birds, which evolved from dinosaurs, theropods specifically, evolved from the lizard-hipped group of dinosaurs and not the bird-hipped group, which I just think is really hilarious. <laughs> anyway, true dinosaurs first appeared on the Earth in the, in the Triassic era roughly 245 million years ago. And they remained on this planet all the way until a much later era uh, that uh, they kind of disappeared roughly 66 million years ago, right? Uh, we believe due to an asteroid impact with the Earth, which is a heck of a way to go, honestly. <laughs> and... Uh, that means dinosaurs were appearing on this planet and moving into a dominant ecological niche for about 180 million years. Now, human civilization has been around about 10,000 years. Anatomically modern humans may have been on the planet, say, a quarter million years. Generously, maybe as little as 100,000. Excuse me, <laughs> 100 million. And... Um, no, 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 100,000. I was right the first time. Too many millions in my notes. Yeah, 180 million years versus human civilization being 10,000 years. So based on the amount of time dinosaurs were the dominant life form on this planet, they are easily among the most successful vertebrates that have ever lived on this planet. So we got to give them their due. You know, they're not around anymore. Uh, but they had an incredible run, uh, frankly, unmatched by any other vertebrates in Earth's history. The Cozy Robot Show would be impossible without the support of our wonderful sponsors. The first one this week is NordVPN. You know, I used to work in IT security. That was my job before I was an author or a podcaster. And uh, it's where I got the start in my career. And let me tell you something. The internet is a scary place. There are companies that want to mine your personal information to sell you advertising. There are criminal enterprises and hackers who want your personal information to steal from you. There's even criminal enterprises who want to use your computer to engage in criminal activity that has nothing to do with you. The internet is become a messed up place. And a VPN is one of the first and easiest steps you can take to secure your online experience. And NordVPN is one of the best. They've got super fast servers, over 5,059 countries that allow you to have fast, secure internet access. They protect your data while you're traveling and an in, in any public Wi-Fi hotspot, like in an airport or a coffee shop, 
And they've got a cybersecurity suite that acts as an ad blocker and accelerate your internet connections with their NordLynx product. Now, because NordVPN is a trustworthy company, they don't do any data logging. They offer 24-7 customer support and allow up to six simultaneous connections from multiple devices, including those running Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, and Android. And of course, you get unlimited bandwidth, which you can use to change the region or country your computer appears to be in for using things like Netflix overseas. And they have an automatic kill switch in the event that you find any problem or concern that's going on with a given internet connection. And really amazing for a VPN is they still allow P2P file sharing. And they've got a special holiday deal just for listeners and viewers of the Cozy Robot Show. Every purchase of a two-year plan will get you four additional months completely free. So go to nordvpn.com slash cozy robots and use our coupon code cozy robots at checkout to get your four free months again that's nordvpn.com slash cozy robots and our second sponsor this week is you <laughs> it takes a team to make this program i know you just see me and some guests on camera but we have producers, we have writers, we have social media managers, we have business managers, we have uh, editors, we have gr motion graphic artists, we have graphic designers. There's an entire team that makes this program each and every week. And it takes money to do that. And so for people who are able to, we invite you to become cozy robots with us. And when you do, you get to join our private Discord server. I call it the internet without all the bad stuff because we share in community and creativity together. And every week following this program, we have an after party where we do a lot of fun things. We play Among Us. We play trivia and quiz games. A couple of weeks ago, Taylor Hughes, the renowned magician, came by and performed a magic show just for the Cozy Robots that left everyone in tears. You know, your support really does make this show happen. And if you aren't a cozy robot yet, would you consider joining us at literally any level? I mean, a dollar does help and help us produce this show. You can learn all about how to do that by visiting us at CozyRobots.com. Again, that's CozyRobots.com. So... What were dinosaurs anyway? We figured that out. Lizard-hipped and bird-hipped animals, 2,500 species living on Earth for hundreds of millions of years, the most successful vertebrates of all time. But what else do we know about them? Well, one question we can ask that reveals a lot about what dinosaurs were like is, a, well, an ongoing question in the world of science. Were dinosaurs warm-blooded or cold-blooded. Now, if you're not familiar with those terms or you've maybe heard them more in a literary context where you know a, a cold-blooded person is someone who's calculating and a warm-blooded person is someone who's compassionate, perhaps. When we talk about warm-blooded and cold-blooded in biology, we're talking about something different. That's basically how an organism's metabolism works. Warm-blooded animals like birds and mammals, their bodies can maintain their core temperature in a very wide array of external circumstances. We have 
active capacities to cool our bodies when we're hot and active abilities to warm our bodies when we're cold. Think of the way that we shiver as mammals and birds when we get cold, the way our bodies increase our metabolic rate, increasing the amount of calories we're burning in order to stay warm. Whereas cold-blooded animals, on the other hand, are more dependent on their environment to control their metabolic rate, therefore their level of activity. Now, one of these is not better than the other. Warm-blooded animals, their, their muscles are kind of always primed for action and ready to go. And that's nice, but it comes at a cost. We have to eat a lot more food per volume of body weight when compared to our cold-blooded contemporaries. But when we think about the dinosaurs, whether they were warm-blooded or cold-blooded, we have to remember our first question, who are the dinosaurs anyway, really? Remember, we're talking about so many different species of dinosaurs. We know of more than 2,500 dinosaur species that lived again over a period of 180 million years. And so it's unlikely, in fact, that all dinosaurs carried the same metabolic characteristics. Not all modern mammals have the same metabolic characteristics, believe it or not. Uh, if you think about a platypus, they're technically warm-blooded, but not in the same way that other mammals are. So let's, let's dig a little deeper into this warm or cold-blooded thing because there's some additional complexity. When we talk about warm-blooded and cold-blooded, there's multiple factors here. Is an animal ectothermic? An ectothermic animal, which we would also call an ectotherm, is dependent on their external environment for body heat, right? Think about a turtle crawling up onto a log uh, in order to warm itself in the sun. They do that because they're ectothermic. An endotherm or endothermic organism can generate their own body heat like people. But you can have a homeothermic animal. Now, they regulate their body temperature via meta metabolic changes and shivering, right? So you could technically have an ectotherm who's dependent on their external environment for body heat who was also homeothermic. In the same way, we have, that. now this is quite a word, poikilothermic or a poikilotherm that regulates their body temperature via behavior. Now, typically, you would think of a poikilothermic ectotherm and a homeothermic endotherm as being most animals. But even in the modern world, we have animals that kind of cross those categories. Endotherms that are homeothermic, excuse me, yeah, ectotherms that are homeothermic and endotherms that are poikilothermic. Edge cases like yellowfin tuna or, um, or the platypus, right? They don't cleanly fit into these categories. And as we've discussed the dinosaurs, you know, when we try to figure out which metabolic characteristics they have, we've gotten some really confusing points of data. When we think about sauropods, the very largest dinosaurs, right? The, the ones you got classic dinosaurs, the big center mass bodies, very long tails, very long necks, the biggest land-based herbivores to ever live. If they were kind of modern endotherms, 
modern homeothermic endotherms, they're so big, they'd probably burn up. On the other hand, if they were cold-blooded in the classical sense, um, they'd grow too slowly to reach their adult size. They'd also likely have difficulty moving. And so when we look at the rapid growth and when we look at dinosaur bones, we do see they tended to grow quite quickly, uh, much more in line with warm-blooded animals than cold-blooded. Um, another term emerges, and that's a mesotherm. And a mesotherm is an animal that contains a mixture of ectothermic and endothermic traits. It means somewhere in between. If we think about dinosaurs as a bridge between reptiles and birds, it starts to make sense that they might have a mix of characteristics of those two groups. And most paleontologists, although there is a lot of debate on this point, think that most dinosaurs were in fact probably somewhere between reptiles being generally ectothermic and poikilothermic, and birds who are endothermic and homeothermic. The biggest sauropods would have been too hot and needed too much food to survive as classic endotherms. I mean, think about how big these animals were. They would never be able to eat enough mass if they had the metabolism of a cow, right? But because they were so big, they probably had really stable body temperatures just from sheer mass. It would take a long time to warm or cool an animal that large, so they might be less sensitive to sun exposure or cooling at night uh, you know, than other cold-blooded animals. Their sheer mass may have imparted upon them many of the characteristics of warm-blooded animals. You know, it's like I said, dinosaurs seem to have grown a lot faster than modern and ancient reptiles, and that leads credence to the notion that they at least had some or even many warm-blooded traits. We see trends like this a lot with the dinosaurs. Remember, birds have the best claim to being living dinosaurs when compared to any other animals on the planet. They share common ancestors with creatures like the Tyrannosaurus rex. And many dinosaurs therefore likely had bird-like traits. Now this is really interesting. This, this conversation about metabolism, you might say, well, why do I care? What does this mean in terms of dinosaurs? Well. The difference between warm-blooded and cold-blooded doesn't just determine like whether you bask in the sun and for how long. Metabolic traits are associated with a lot of different behaviors and traits in an organism. The simple fact of the matter is it requires some degree of warm-blooded metabolism to support a modern and intelligent nervous systems. Mammals and birds are the most intelligent animals who have ever lived on this planet. And if dinosaurs had bird-like characteristics, well, it's possible, then they also may have had bird-like intelligence. Now, you know, it's very famous. When we look at the fossil record, as a ratio of the size of their bodies to the size of their brains. Dinosaurs were not bright creatures. This is something that Jurassic Park got really wrong uh, when they depicted velociraptors in the films. They not only made velociraptors much, 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 much larger than those creatures were in the real world. Velociraptors were roughly turkey-sized uh, in reality. Um, 
But they also, you know, no Velociraptor would be operating a door handle. The smartest dinosaurs were likely about as smart as an ostrich. And some of the biggest behavioral innovations among late intelligence dinosaurs were nesting. Like, not just making a nest, but warming eggs until they hatch, and then not eating the babies. So, we didn't have, like, a <laughs> nurturing dinosaur society, very likely. These were not intelligent creatures. So, things like pair bonding and, um, you know, nurturing parenting strategies, probably, probably not a part of dinosaur behaviors. Although, you know, among the herding dinosaurs, certainly... Juveniles would herd alongside their parents. Um, this has the warm-blooded question really unlocks a lot in how we understand dinosaur behavior because it gives us an insight into not only the size of their brains, but their structural composition and efficiency. I mean, think about it this way. Parrots, believe it or not, pound for pound have more powerful brains than humans. They have more dense neurological structures. Bird brains are remarkably sophisticated in the animal kingdom. And so if dinosaurs were bird-like, perhaps they had prototype bird brains and may have had a little more intelligence than we might expect based on their brain size, right? So we have 2,500 species over 180 million years showing likely a mix of metabolic characteristics, but likely more bird-like than we have understood in film and media, which kind of begs one last question. Did dinosaurs have feathers? And if they did, how on earth would we know that? Well, uh, fossils, when we think of fossils, we think of bones, right? Bones that have been turned to stone. But that's not the only kind of fossils that we have. We also have fossilized impressions, right? A fossilized impression is when an organism um, dies and stays in contact with uh, clay or some other form of soil that then fossilizes itself and we're left with an impression of the organism. And so we have impressions of shells, of course. Those are classic impression fossils. But as we've looked more and more for fossils, we've found what? Skin impressions. We found impressions from feathered organisms throughout history. Then we get this kind of reverse impression of, uh, of the exterior of an animal. Also, occasionally, we get soft tissues that fossilize. So sometimes we get skin and organs and other things. It's rare, but it happens that are fossilized, and then we can either take them apart or, in modern context, use things like CT scans to look inside these structures and get a deeper look at animals that haven't been on the Earth in millions of years. And so when we look at dinosaur fossils, we are starting to find feathers and fur on dinosaurs we're starting to in the bones see the places that feathers could be anchored and in fact using physics when we get um accurate looks into the structures of feathers of dinosaurs we can even learn the specific colors those dinosaur feathers had when we compare the microscopic sacs of pigments in those fossils to the corresponding sacs of pigments in modern birds 
we can, with great accuracy and fidelity, not only tell what dinosaurs may have had feathers, but what color those feathers may have been. And this tells me, and paleontologists who know a lot more than me, dinosaurs were probably wildly more bird-like than we've ever imagined, certainly more than I imagined as a child. And it's probable that movies like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World have gone overboard with how scaly dinosaurs may have been. Now, I want to be clear. There were likely dinosaurs that were just scaly. But many dinosaurs, particularly theropods, were likely starting to have fur, kind of a proto-feather, and then a proto-feather that's more feather-like, and in some cases, maybe even actual feathers. And that, that would make dinosaurs look really different than we've imagined before. I mean, imagine a feathered dinosaur. Imagine a tyrannosaur with feather-like plumes along their back ridge or along their arms that were likely more pronounced when they were juveniles. I mean, think about how different a feathered velociraptor would look than what we've imagined. But science demands that we follow the evidence wherever the evidence leads. And what we're finding as we look at the fossil record is feathered dinosaurs. That means dinosaurs were likely more feathered than we've seen depicted in film, probably less intelligent and generally smaller than we see depicted in franchises like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. It means as inspiring as we are by these images, dinosaurs may even be more remarkable than we've imagined before. And as we tried to tell stories, and they remain some of the most remarkable and successful families of animals to ever live on our planet. I think it's likely without a mass extinction event following an asteroid strike, mammals would have never developed the way that we have because dinosaurs are just too damn good at living on this planet. <laughs> they were likely more metabolically efficient than we are. Now, they lived on a very hot earth, which helped them. An ice age uh, would have been challenging for many dinosaur species. Um, but their loss, the catastrophic loss of life following the asteroid strike in the Yucatan Peninsula, it paved the way for us. And I can't help but think of dinosaurs every time I put bird seed in my bird feeders and sit in my favorite chair with a cup of coffee and watch the motions of little goldfinches and house finches and band-tailed pigeons. Contrary to the imagination of these giant crocodilians I had as a child, bird-like dinosaurs are captivating with their grace, their efficiency, and yeah, their intelligence. So, I can't wait to see where paleontologists and evolutionary biologists take us over the next 30 years in how we understand these majestic creatures. And I can't wait to see the stories and films that people come up with in response. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Cozy Robot Show. We hope it's been a nice change of gears during a holiday season and talk about something a little bit more fun. Don't forget, you can like and subscribe 
to the program on YouTube, as well as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just follow and like on whatever channel you prefer so you make sure you don't miss it when we have new things coming on. And also don't forget that the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. And so I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, each and every Cozy Robot. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. The music for the program was written and recorded by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support has been offered by Andrew Galucky. Our social media manager is Grace Vaughn. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. We do love the Cozy Robot set. Thank you, Jesse. And wardrobe stylist and craft services is Ginny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show. <laughs> what did I hit? <laughs> oh, bye, everybody.